Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Before we get going, I wanted to just pay tribute to the lovely Imelda Merrillfield, who tragically passed away yesterday. Melda was married to friend of the show Manny from the Stone Roses and Primal Scream and both were really good friends with Paul who was often invited round to the house when he was in Manchester to sample one of Imelda's famous Sunday dinners. We all send our deepest love and condolences to Manny and their twin boys and of course to all of Imelda's family and friends. Hi there and welcome to this special bonus edition of the Paul Ryder Tapes. There's still more of the main series to come, but this week, in honour of the fact that Paul's solo project Big Arms album Radiator is re-released today, exactly 16 years after its original launch, we're playing the interviews that I did with Paul's friends and collaborators, the Big Arm Boys. That's Pete Smith, the programmer, keyboards and producer, Danny Shaw, the drummer, an incredible mimic, and Daz Gilkinson, the ace, guitarist, an all-round great lad. Plus, of course, Lee Mullen, the percussionist extraordinaire, and, of course, Big Arm's fab roadie driver and tour assistant, Chris Connolly, also known as Double Pudding and Chips. Here, Daz recalls an incident that took place when Big Arm supported Ian Brown. Remember that? Um, I can't remember which one it was, um, mm. with Ian Brown. And Paul had obviously told Ian Brown about Danny's mimicking skills. Yeah. So yeah. then Ian Brown comes rushing into the dressing, dressing room. Who's yeah. the mimic? Who's the mimic? Who's then? the mimic? Who's so the mimic? So yeah. Danny, Danny here goes, go on then. So he does Jules Holland, amazing. Introduces Ian Brown on Jules Holland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then and then this is Ian Brown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since you last worked with the Roses, so. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, oh, fucking great, man, great, great. And then as soon as he walked out and shut the door, Daddy started doing Ian Brown. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's getting very confused. Daz recalls the first time he met Paul. Well, I was in a, a studio at Whitworth, and um, one night the lad who ran the studio got a phone call off Pete Smith asking if he'd come down and do some backing vocals. So. I think he asked me just to come along with him as a bit of support. 
Anyway, when we got down there, I met Pete and there were some guitars there. So Pete just said, why don't you have a go? About uh, two hours into the night, then Paul walks in. So I didn't even recognise him at all. You know, it was just like, what an eye, mate. See, I was a bit of a rocker as a young'un, but my brother was completely Manchester. So when I went back and told him, and he's just like, <laughs> mouth dropped. You know, do you know who he is? And I'm like, well, no, no, no don't really. <laughs> then he filled in the gaps and showed me some footage and played some music. And it was like, oh, all right, I know what you mean. But I'm really glad I didn't know that before I met him. <laughs> Pete Smith first met Paul more than 30 years ago through their mutual friend, John Pennington. I was kind of hanging on and working in Strawberry part-time. And so I knew John for that. I'd been there a couple of years. And he said, oh, we've got this session around the corner with Paul Ryder. So I was like, well, what is it? So Because all I knew was the Mondays up to that point. Um, and I think he'd he'd been working with Paul on Bummed in Strawberry, and that's how he kind of got to know Paul. And he said, oh, it's just, I don't know, it's like something he's doing, like, after the Monday split up. I'd like someone to kind of get involved more producing and writing. So I was like, oh, okay. So I went round, and we wrote one of the Estrella tunes at that point. And I've met that. So that's when I met Paul, basically, with him and Estrella, the start of the Estrella thing. Estrella was Paul's girlfriend and the daughter of Donovan, and Paul was collaborating with her at the time on some tunes. And then we we spent about two years or something like that sporadically writing songs, and that's when Donovan get, got involved and said, let's do this properly, I'll put some money into it, let's get it finished off and released. We rented a little studio in New Mount Street in Manchester, and tried to get as many tracks finished as we could. And then we went into the studio to mix them. And what happened was that Paul was um, falling off the wagon whilst this mixing session was happening. And Estrella was like, right, that's it, we're done. And then she got together with one of the rappers and Paul disappeared for a little while. And then we carried on and then uh she basically she we've mixed these seven tracks and she was like right I, I don't like any of them and i've been like well i've just spent the last three years of my life doing this stuff so at that point right i sold everything that i had sold my sampler sold my keyboards everything and was like right that's it with music now i'm done and then it was only when paul rang me up a couple of years later and said, I want to do some more stuff. And that's when Big Arm was formed. Paul soon recruited the Monday's percussionist, Lee Mullen, into the Big Arm fold. But they'd first met when Paul was auditioning Lee for the Mondays. I first uh, met Paul on my audition for the Happy Mondays. It, there would have been a room with in Greenhouse Studios with myself, Paul, Ben... Leach, the MD, and Gary Whelan. So my first impressions of Paul really were, he was the most welcoming, really. And we just, we, we didn't really play any, very many of the sort of Happy Mondays songs, I remember. I think we just, we just jammed. And it, Paul made me feel very easy, very quickly. And after us playing for maybe around 40 minutes or something, he said, 
right, welcome to the family. You're in the band. You're lead percussion in the band. So that's what he said. And that's why I went on to, to me playing, obviously, with uh, Big Arm and also playing in Buffalo 66 as well. So three bands, really. Drummer Danny Short came through a recommendation from a friend. When I first met Paul, I think it was in 2002, when a mutual friend, uh, Rob Farrington, introduced the two of us. I used to host show with Rob, and obviously he knew that I was a musician and was always banging on about, you know, how he knew Paul and you need to meet him and maybe you could end up working with him at some point. So I think Rob managed to drag him along to a gig. I got chatting to him and he mentioned that he was doing some music with Pete for the film 24 Hour Party People. And so I went along, the first time I worked with Paul and Pete in the studio at Worsley was whilst they were making this track and I contributed a tiny little bit of guitar to the track. Next thing I know, Paul rang me again and said, me and Pete have been working on some material, possibly for an album. Would you like to, you know, get involved with that? So I came along, did a bit of singing playing guitar, some drums, and what we did ended up becoming the Radiator album. They were like the demos for the album that became Radiator. And then along came guitarist Daz Gilkinson. So behind the scenes, Paul and Pete are cramming it in to try and get things going. Then I turn up, and can you put anything to this? So I just get stuck in me, I just close my eyes and off I go. So as soon as I got what they were aiming at, I just flew at it then. And did you enjoy what you were making, what you were playing? Oh, it was wonderful. Love, I loved it. And the way we did, because we were always falling about laughing. You know, I always tried to get it right when we were doing it. But in between doing it, it was just uh, banter all the way. It was such an enjoyable band, that. Do you remember, do you remember that gig that where Pete was late... And, and you had to go on stage before Pete got there and Derek had to stand I in. Do. Big Arms keyboardist and programmer Pete Smith will never live that night down. It was a really important show for Big Arm, playing for the first time in front of a massive crowd in London supporting Ian Brown. Literally, the band had to go on stage and start performing before he'd even arrived at the venue. Everyone was almost having heart attacks. You've, yeah. Listen, right, you've, you, I lived through that. I was fit in the kitchen, like, in the morning, yeah. and, and it overran, that's why I was late. So I get the train to London, and then I get on the tube, and I've never got off the tube in Brixton before, so it's like, you know when you come off the tube in Brixton, there's, like, loads of yeah. steps, in there, and then you just come out onto the main street, and it's like, whoa! <laughs> and so I'm coming up these steps... And Chris is at the top of the steps and he's like, quick, come on. Right. So I'm running down the street. I'm running down the main, the high street in Brixton, like following Chris. We kind of legged it in the stage door and he's like shoving me through. And then on the stage, and I put my bag down at the back of the stage. I walked on, took my coat off, put my coat down, tapped Derek on the shoulder. He got up and walked off, and I sat down and just started. <laughs> yeah. Like, shit, like... <laughs> yeah. was, was it the first song that you got? Was it, was it the middle of the first song? I think so, yeah. Well, it was nuts because it was like Brixton Academy with like however oh, many thousand people in there. Yeah. It was just like. And were you two not. Were you. Were you. And, and the rest of the band not panicking that. 
Keaton. No, no. <laughs> no, no. We knew he'd get them. No, we no, knew he'd no. get them. No. Plenty of time, you know. No. Quick, wait. Yeah, get in, man. Come Run on, you got a bit late. Run faster. For God's sake. When you played live, Pete, what did you actually do then? Because if Derek was able to replicate you by pressing the button. <laughs> <laughs> Crosswords. There were a few bits missing, you know, but it was well, sparse, it was sparse, you know. I mean, it's it's a bit like, um, I was kind of putting the, the, the icing on the cake, let's yes. just put it, put it like that. So if, you, if you'd not shown up until six songs in, would people have noticed? No. Yeah. <laughs> 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 It was there in spirit. Yeah. It was there in spirit. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I yeah, I did play some parts, but um, I probably also had them on track just in case I didn't feel up to it that night. <laughs> so it was the driver, Rody Chris Connolly, who saved the day by helping Pete get to the venue in the nick of time. Yeah, my name's Chris Connolly. I was uh, driver roadie for Big Arm for around about two and a half years. I was known in Big Arm as double pudding and chips because back then I was 20 stone and I loved that nickname. A lot of people would have got a smack off me for that nickname, but Paul gave me that nickname and I loved it. If they would have made a carry-on film about a band, <laughs> that was it. Being in Big Arm, being in and around Big Arm, what with Danny Short and all the lads. And Paul had his moments, he was hilarious. But me and Derek as well, driving to Berlin and back on our own, like Max and Paddy. So it was when Big Arm had a gig in Berlin to do that Double Pudding drove to Berlin with the van and the equipment, along with Paul's dad, Derek. And the gig was actually in the British consulate in Berlin, so security was extra tight. Double Pudding and Derek drove out there, drove all the equipment there, didn't they? We flew out there, and when we got there, Derek were grinning and chuckling as soon as I got there. And I, I, th I thought there was something about to be sprung on us or something. I couldn't work out what it was. So then we pulls the van in and all these military come out with uh, trolleys with mirrors on, checking because they had to lift all these, sink all these steel posts into the ground so we could drive in and then all the posts come in. Proper military operation, checking underneath for, for bombs and devices and thought, oh, this is full on. And that, right, you can start unloading your gear. So we start pulling it out. And I don't know if you remember, Angela, I bought off eBay, it was like um, a missile artillery box and it was all khaki green with yellow military numbers all over it. But I used to put my effect pedals in there, they fit perfectly. And Derek, well, that's what he was sniggering at because he knew I forgot to change it. That should never have gone over. And uh, as they're pulling out, I could see it. the last bit of gear come out and I could see it. And just as I'm going for it, I can hear Derek going, Daz, Daz! Your box, your box. And I pulled it out and this guard shouted that loud at me. I put my hands up. <laughs> he screamed at me, put that down. <laughs> and drummer Danny Short's impressions always kept everybody laughing in hysterics. He's one of them, Paul. He was, he was kind of, um, you know, 
he was easy to make laugh. You, you know, he's quite a humorous fella, and um, I'm one of them. If I'm working in a band or anything, you know, with anything that I'm doing, I like to be able to have a bit of banter and to be able to have a laugh and not take myself too seriously. I mean, there's like a common fallacy that if you're having a bit of a laugh and you're messing about, you're doing less work, you know, and that, I don't think that's necessarily always the case, you know. I'm not saying work the work environment should be like a circus, you know, you should all be doing cartwheels and everything and, you know, red nose on you and everything, but Paul always encouraged everyone to be humorous and have a laugh and a joke. And guitarist Daz Gilkinson, like the rest of them, was blown away when they got the opportunity to support Ian Brown on a major UK tour. And at the same time, he was touring with another band he was in, an Oasis tribute band called Wonderwall. The first gig we did with Ian Brown was Brayhead Arena in Scotland. I think it's about 20,000 people or something. So the night before, I'd been in Birmingham doing a massive gig, as far as I was concerned. And there were about 3,500 there. I brought Wonderwall with me, and we went straight to that gig. And I walked on the stage, and the stage was bigger than the venue I'd played in the night before. And that was a bit of a... <laughs> Keyboardist Pete Smith remembers that night well too. So I've got two great memories, right, from that night. The first one is when we're sat in catering and Ian Brown comes in. We were at Soundcheck, and uh, Ian Brown had just finished there, so we were on stage setting up ours. And then Ian Brown comes in screaming at everybody. Where's my fucking pie? Who's Who's had all my pie? Went mad at everybody, stormed out. He storms out through this door, shuts the door behind him. And then like about 10 seconds later, he comes out and says, it's a cupboard. (laughs) How'd you get out of this fucking building? That's what he said. I remember uh, me and Lee kind of like, don't laugh, don't laugh. And I even remember Paul saying, Say just don't just leave it, you know. Just say you know. <laughs> the other, the other memory it. from that gig was like uh, so we come on stage and I was like, oh, I've made it good here. Mm. I'm in a band, I'm supporting Ian Brown, <clears throat> so it's like six thousand caparina. I'm like, mm. this is gonna be great. So we go up to play the first song. <laughs> Someone launched like a drink at me, and it was like one of those blue wicked drinks. Or oh something. yeah, just yeah, coated yeah. me a Thai keyboard. <laughs> it was just like really sticky. It's gonna be like, one of those nights. I was like, oh, I'll just yeah. put it on track. That's <laughs> 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 that then, isn't it? <laughs> Cleaning it for days. Oh, I mean, to be fair, Ian giving us them two shots was fantastic, weren't it? To get us yeah. out there, you, you couldn't ask for more. Oh right, there's a good one. The Metro. The Metro, Metro Club, Club in Soho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Zodiac Mind We played Walk. with Zodiac Mind Walk. Alan McGee were DJing. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Um and yeah, so we we'd done our spot, which went down great. And then we're in the dressing room just mopping our brows and getting ready to go. And this this magician looking fella walks in mm. and he had a black cape on and a black hat and Black shades and a yeah. cane. Yeah. And he walks in and he said, uh, well, you all look like you've done a bit, so if you want mine, fucking off. So we could do a bit. And mm. I'm looking, thinking, yeah. this magic actor's got a terrible <laughs> attitude. 
I didn't have a clue that he was a singer. Split your fingers and yeah. And yeah. Uh, anyway, Paul stood yeah. toe to toe and give it him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, me and Danny went upstairs thinking, I'm not standing with this prick. No, and no. then Paul come up and we went. I said, How did you know him? And he goes, I don't know him. Oh, all right. I thought you knew him. That's why I bought second. I Talk was, about yeah. backup. Yeah. Good luck, Paul. I always remember Paul saying, because uh, he said, didn't he? No, fuck <laughs> off. And Paul said, yeah. if you say fucking please, I will. Yeah. 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 He didn't want to do that. So, yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, he really it's pissed off. us off. Uh, and he really pissed Paul off. I remember I met a sex pistol that night. Paul Cook come and watched in the us. audience, yeah. And yeah. so was Ian Astbury from the cult. That's right. Well. He was DJing. He was, yeah. Paul yeah. Cook was yeah. friends with Paul. Yeah, yeah well, right. we, I was sat talking mm. to him for ages, mm. and then he left, yeah. and Paul said, "You haven't got a clue who that word, have you?" And I went, "No, why?" <laughs> <laughs> I remember playing on stage, and there was actually a light shining on Paul Cook. I could see his face really, really vividly. It's like there's a sex pistol. There's <laughs> a sex pistol. Yeah. What did you think about Paul singing? Because obviously that was a brand new thing for him from being a bass player. I've got, it's kind of hats off to him because I I do quite a bit of singing in bands I'm, I'm in, but I couldn't take my guitar off. I'd be naked. That would be the most uncomfortable thing. So the fact that he actually had a go at that, oh, no, I, I couldn't have, uh, I could, I'd, have, I'd have had to have a guitar there even if I weren't playing it. The fact Paul stood up and tried that, yeah, that's uh, some doing that. Do you think he was trying to prove a point to his brother, doing Big Al? Um, I think he was trying to prove a point to himself that he's got this, you know, it's in his bones and his blood as much as anyone else's. And percussionist Lee Mullen agrees. I knew Paul loved talking ads and, and loved that kind of stuff and all the bass was on track mm. so Paul could sing. And I thought that was really cool that Paul just decided to, you know, he said... He always said to me, he said, I want to be Brian Ferry in this band. <laughs> I, said, well, I said to him, well, you've got, you've got the air cut and you've got the leather jacket, you know. And, um, and he, said, he said, yeah, I want, to be, you know, I want to be cool in this band. He said, I wasn't, I wasn't cool in the Mondays. He said, I want to be cool in this band. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Daz believes Big Arm served a real purpose in Paul's life. When Big Arm ran its course, so to speak, and he got back in the Mondays, I think he was completely now ready to, to get back in his rightful place and go for it big time, and he definitely seemed to do that. 
I think yeah. it served him well, but it, it brought him back to, in the end, it brought him back to where he started. Do you think Big Arm would have been any different if he hadn't had his issues with drugs and stuff? Do you think that that really got in the way of the success? I don't know. I, w- I wouldn't know what to say about that. I mean, yeah, I remember a few relapses with him, but when we did come together, the job was always done. There were nothing fell apart while we were halfway through anything. You know, there was stuff behind the scenes, but I don't know. I, I, I think it ran its course. There was one particular night when me and Pete Smith, the keyboard player, ended up having to go and drag Paul out of a drug house, which was a particularly bad memory for me. I have a very, very vivid memory of driving yeah. with you to Gorton and going to that. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I remember it vividly, yeah. I remember having conversations with you and you saying that it disappeared and he'd taken the car and you thought you knew where he was, but you weren't sure. Yeah, we went out for a drive round, couldn't find him. And then we went out another time and then we... And he was there. I left you there with him because he said, oh, I've not finished yet. And I, I went off and left you there with him. Do you, right. do you remember that? I've got so many memories that are a bit like that with Paul. And right. what what the weird thing about it is for me is that, like, it's obviously different for you and different for other people in his life. But I always kind of, I, I, I always put it in a box separate to everything that, everything else that was going on with me and Paul. It, it's weird, really, because... Um, I can remember when we first got married um, and we moved into that house next door but one to Claire's mum and dad. So she came home one day and she's like, um, Paul had been around, been doing some writing and stuff. And she's like, um, what's what's with all the Kit Kats in the toilet? So I was like, what do you mean? She's like, oh, there's a load of Kit Kat wrappers. What's, what's been going on? I was like, well, nothing. Why? And I was like, it didn't dawn on me at all. And then we kind of, like, she was like, she kind of talked me through it. And I was like, right, okay, that kind of figures. So that was kind of when we first started working together properly um, outside of the studio. So I was like, right, okay. But I was like, well, that's nothing to do with me, what he does in his personal life. Like, we're just making music together. That was kind of before we became friends, if you like. Did you not get to the point, though, where you knew Myloff, whether he was using or not? No. (laughs) Well, I think, yeah, probably sometime. Yeah, I've never been good at that. Did you not feel traumatised? Like, look, that night when we went to that drug den to pull him out, did you not feel traumatised by that? Not really. I just felt a little bit embarrassed. For who? For all of us, really. It was just like, oh, what, what is this? We're like, why am I here? <laughs> like, I was there supporting you and him, but it was just like, it was just like kind of a bit awkward. Do you know what I mean? It's like, ah, oh, hi, Paul. Fancy seeing you here. <laughs> His face was just like total shock when I pitched up, and I think he was he was a lot more embarrassed that I was there. So. But, but, I mean, there's times when we had uh, the studio in New Mount Street when we were doing the Estrella stuff, and I can remember when we were setting it up, we were putting, like, carpet over the walls and a big frame, and he was kind of... 
he was he was like half being sick in a bag underneath this huge roll of carpet while I was trying to nail it on the wall. And I was just like, oh, God. This is just like, it's hilarious, but also like terribly like tragic as well. There, there was one time when we were in there and there were loads of studios and management offices and stuff in there. And there was one day where we were looking after the neighbour's dog. And so I said to Paul, I got to lunchtime, I was like, I've got to go and feed the dog and let it out. So I'll be back in like an hour or something. So he was like, right, no worries, I'll stay here. So so I went off, fed the dog, came back and I opened the door and Paul sat there and then this other guy called Chris from round the corner in the office was sat there and they both looked up and they had like some foil like that and like just looked up at me in total shock and Paul went, he made me do it and Chris went, it was his fault. <laughs> and it was just like... Come on, guys. Like, it's like having two kids. Like, I can't leave you for an hour without you going scoring. But um, it's just like, yeah, so I've always kind of, it's traumatic in a way, but I've always yeah, kind of put that in a box and said, well, that's, 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 that's his personal life, you know, because I, I've worked with so many musicians over the years that you have yeah. to kind of, you take them for their whole personality and everything but it's like if, if if i took on board his trauma and all the things that went along with that then i don't think i don't think we'd have done half the stuff that we did and yeah. and i don't think we'd have kind of continued with it really I think. and a lot of yeah. people musicians and people in the music industry have substance issues and, and addiction yeah. issues but somehow managed to function. I mean, you, you could say, you know, Paul managed to function over, you know, like four decades of being in bands and making music. Was it, was it functional? Probably not. But did he make the music? Yes. So. How different so. do you think his life would have been if he, if he hadn't had addiction issues? You know, it did drive wedges between him and other other people, which, yeah. you know, closed off uh, opportunities, yeah. I would say, definitely. But I don't know, maybe this is a little bit glib, but I work with a lot of musicians and they've all got demons of one sort or another. And that's part of what makes them what they are. It's part of what comes out in their art. It's like Amy Winehouse is a, is a prime example, you know. If you took all that side of her away, would she have made the art that she made? And the answer and the is answer probably, no. probably yeah. not. Yeah. So right. you, yeah. it's like saying if you if you took all that trauma and that addiction away from Paul, what would his personality be? How would he be creative? Whilst he's right. undoubtedly probably not made the best of all the opportunities that he could have done would he have been able to do that if he was clean and it's hard really because it's it's so tragic when you see someone like Paul or like Amy Winehouse have that kind of that level of trauma that ultimately destroys them yeah. um then if you separate that away you, you're kind of taking a part of them away and the, it, the line between kind of insanity and ge genius is so... You can't yeah. kind of pull it apart. That's why I've always loved 
like really loved working with musicians because they they're just fascinating creatures. They have so much going on beneath the surface. I've always found it really interesting getting into people's heads, into musicians' heads. And they're just fascinating creatures, really. They're just the most troubled, but also the most joyous people to be around. I asked guitarist Daz Gilkinson what he felt about Paul. Lovely fella. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you could chat to him about anything. And he showed, you know, I'll tell you what, I will say this about Paul. He did show me what to stay away from, you know, because I, d I do recall thinking, this guy's an happy Monday, you know. God, I could I could be getting into anything here. <laughs> <laughs> and he just wasn't that, that guy. And he told me everything about everything that had happened to him and everything what's happened to people and totally scared me away from the whole thing. He made it quite clear how damaging it is. What exactly? What you mean, the drugs and the drinking? Or yeah, what it had, what it had done to him, you know. I remember we were sat up one night, and I had a few beers. Me and Paul sat up all night chatting, and he's like, "Well, you know, because because of what I've done, I'm sat here having a, a coffee and a cig, you know. You've got the you've got choice." He said, "I ain't got choice. I've had that took away because of how I behaved." He was really open, and it totally. Well, I'd, I'd say it to everybody, you know, if you, if you want to lose everything that you love, go straight into all that, you know. If you want to keep it, keep away. It's simple. And that, yeah, I am very grateful for that, you know. Some of the things he told us, like when they went Brazil and that for the first time, just throwing it at them. Throwing it at them. And that is a scary situation, that. How did you feel when when you found out the Mondays had got back together? Were you did you feel good about that? Oh, I felt excellent. I was so I've got to admit that I you know uh, loving the big arm thing as much as I did because I really did the the banter and the, the oh it would everybody involved it was just such a joyous experience. But I was as equally as happy when I when I learned that he got back in with a. I was so made up for him. It's like, well, you know, he, he started this. He, he should be there. And to get it back and then to get round the world, a few, I was I was so made up for him. I was buzzing for him. I really well. I couldn't have been happier. I were happier with him doing that than coming back to us because yeah. he, he needed to be getting out doing what he's fantastic at, basically. Yeah. And when we went, remember when we went to the, the first one they did at the GMEX when you and the lads come over? And we all went down, didn't we? Not the GMAX, it was the MEN. What a gig. You know, like, you know, have you heard that? <laughs> you know? And I'd not heard him do that. He didn't touch the bass when I was with him. And percussionist Lee Mullen has nothing but positive things to say about Paul. I always saw a professional side of him. And he was always, everything he ever said that he was going to do, with me involved in it, he did. So he was always very, very courteous and he was always very professional and, and he was a friend. I considered him as a dear friend. And he was somebody musically who I always had a good time on stage with. I never had a bad experience with him. And that was even with Buffalo 66 as well. I loved him being in that band. He came up with some great bass lines that made that band. OK, so tell me about your days in the Mondays. Do you have any good stories? Martin Herbert was his tech. He told me one day, he said, Paul's uh, going to have a, a keg at the side of his Ampeg stack. And I said, what? 
So he said he's going to have a stellar keg. And I went, what, what for? And he said, because so he can pull his own pints in between the songs. And I was like, I don't believe you. And, and honestly, that just, that, that image of me, of me on a riser playing with the Mondays and looking down and him pointing at me and the tr- we're trying to start a song. I think we're trying to start Kinky Afro or something. And he's looking at me and he's going, point, trying to point at me and he's going, do you want one? And he's, he's like we're in a bar. And we're playing somewhere like in Glasgow at the arena. And he's going, I'm just like, hang on a minute. I'm just pouring a pint. And he's like, just making sure the head went on properly. It was hilarious, honestly. It's so funny. I remember being in Norway. We did a festival in Norway, Christian Sand Festival. And we went on there and somebody had... As soon as we'd gone on there, I think somebody had, had give Paul a V. He'd like he'd put two fingers up to Paul or something. or And he, it was like, spoilt the whole gig for him. And he just wanted to fight him. And he was like, all the way through the gig, we started every song, and he was pointing at this person. And he, was, he had his bass and he was going... After the gig, after the and then I've never seen. Honestly, we did like an hour set, and he ran off the stage, and the security followed him. I don't know ever, ever what happened on that, but I've never seen somebody so upset as well. He was, and I said, "What did he come up? He came up afterwards. I said, what happened?' He said, he said he disrespected me. He said he put the visa up. As soon as I walked on stage, he decided he didn't like me. He said, I don't know who he is. And then on that same garbage run with us, and on the same, we went backstage. And Paul just decided that he wanted a food fight and we're in catering backstage. And honestly, it was like, it was like something out of a Western. It was just, food was flying everywhere. It was ridiculous. That was backstage at a festival. And Paul started that. I don't mind saying that. And I don't know he won't mind me saying... Pete Smith remembers when the Mondays very first split up. The first time the Mondays split up, all of them raided the rehearsal room to get whatever they could sell for heroin or for other reasons. And Paul got the sampler, but we were always having to buy floppy disks to save the samples on. And they were like pound fifty each or whatever. So he's like, oh, I've got a box, like, I've got a box of old disks. You can, like, you can just wipe them and use them again, can't you? So I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. So he bought me this big box of, of disks. And, uh, and he says, yeah, just wipe them all, it's fine. So I was like, right, okay. So I got them open and I was looking at him and uh, it's the entire Happy Mondays collection of discs. So all the samples from like all the live stuff and they're all in a box like that. So I was like, well, um, I can just wipe these then, can't I? <laughs> of course, I was like, of course I'm not going to wipe them. It's mm. like... It's like history, isn't and it? And he's still so, got them. No. So what happened was... <laughs> sold them. You bet. Sold them for smoke. <laughs> so basically, right. No, so I, I closed the box and I put the, I put the box in my loft, right? And I was like, that's that's a piece of my history and a piece of Manchester history. I'm going to put them in a, mm. in a safe place. So I put them there and then he then disappeared off. And then I'm just at work one day and Claire phones me up and says... Paul's been on the phone. He's coming round, so he better come home. So I was like, what? What does he want? So like, oh, he's a bit cryptic. So I get, I get home, and I've not seen Paul for like two years or something, and he's sat on my sofa. I'm like, hey, what, what are you doing here? So he's like, oh, well, the Monday's getting back together and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, oh, that's nice. 
He's like, do you remember them discs that you had? So I was like, what discs? And he says, uh, you know, those discs that I gave you and told you to wipe. So I was like, oh, yeah, I remember those. Yeah. And he's going, uh, he's going, do you wipe them? So I was like, yeah. So I, I, I brewed up and I was like, no, actually, they're in the loft. <laughs> Daz remembers the last time he saw Paul. When he got back in the Mondays, uh, me and Duffy, for some reason, we were over Worsley and we were just coming up past Derek and Linda's house and he stood there on the street waiting for his lift. It was so weird because I thought he were in America. <laughs> like, what are you doing here? Yeah. But that was funny because we were in our work clothes so we jumped out and the look on his face was, who the hell is this? You know, coming at him. <laughs> but when he twigged, yeah, he was happy to see us. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, that was last, last time. And uh, how did you find out that he died? It was, it, I heard it from a friend, but I don't know where he heard it. But, but, but I was told before anybody had heard it, so I, don't, I, I can't remember who it is who told him. But nobody else knew when I found out. So you're a bit like, can't be, can it? Can't be real, that. But, yeah. Then it were on the news that night. Like, oh, it is real. Oh, dear. How did you feel? Gutted. Yeah, it's, you know, when you've spent quite a bit of time away from someone, you still know they're out there. And there's always going to be that time to catch up and have a brew and a chat. And it's that that never going to see him or speak to him again. That's uh, an awful thought. And double pudding feels the same way too. I miss Paul and I miss Derek as well, you know. There was always a, a respect with them. Paul, I'm talking about Paul and Derek, was always stand-up geezers. And drummer Danny too took it very badly. Oh, I'm devastated really, yeah, really upset. I mean, last year my dad passed away earlier that year in March. It's, it's coming up for nearly 12 months ago since my dad passed away. He'd been very ill, you know, he was like nearly 80. 
And so I remember, funnily enough, just before, just after my dad passed away, Paul sent me a text saying, oh, man, I'm sorry to hear about you, you your, your dad, keep the faith, all this stuff, and really nice text. I said, oh, thanks, Paul. I had no idea that shortly afterwards he'd, he'd be meeting his maker as well. It's just, it was a shock. Big shock. It's still, still strange thinking that he's not about. I still ex expect to get that humorous little text off him now and again. And... Uh, Knowing that that's not going to happen again, it is weird, and it does. You can't help but get sentimental about it. It really does remind me of how special those times were back in the day with Big Arm and the the, the good memories. And I'm glad. Oh, thank you so much, all of you. You've been amazing. Really, really, thank really that. good. Thanks for asking. Yeah, thank you. No, no, no. Like, we wouldn't have been the same without you. You're a very important part of this. Story. Very important part of the story. More than you know. Well, let's keep in touch. Yeah. Keep us updated, Angela. I can't wait to start seeing this. Alright, fantastic. Thank you yeah. so much again. Thank you. Alright, I'll see you soon. That's it for this episode. We will be back again next week with a special, another special featuring the rock and roll mums, Paul and Sean's mum, Linda, and Gaz Whelan's mum, Sandra. And in two weeks' time, we'll have the grand finale of the main series with the last episode that features Paul. The Big Arm album is out today. It's called Paul Ryder's Big Arm and the name of the album is Radiator, so get yourself a copy wherever you buy your music. Please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash the Paul Ryder tapes. The website is paulrider.tv. Check out the merch in our shop and join in the conversation on the socials. Please give this podcast a review if you've not already done so. It really does help us, especially if you say nice words. Big, big love to all of you. Thank you for listening and we'll be back again next week. Same time, same place. Big thanks to Daz, Danny, Pete, Lee and Double Pudding and Chips for being this week's special guests. And big love and respect, as ever, to the star of the show, the one and only, the late, great Paul Anthony Ryder. Bye, everyone. What I